Now I'm going to ask you to uh, open your Bibles today to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We've been working through the epistle of 1 John, uh, verse by verse, as is our custom. And um, we'll be continuing going through uh, chapter 2, beginning with verses 22, and we'll go through verse 25, God willing, today. I've entitled this message, The Truth About Jesus Christ. And as we've been seeing in uh, 1 John chapter 2, John has been putting the church to various tests. What is the sign? What is the significance? What is the sign of a true believer? And as we saw last week in verse uh, 18 through 21, he talked about the emergence of false teachers. He talked about the emergence of false teachers, and he gave them a title. He called them antichrists. And I shared with you last week that that word antichrist means those that simply oppose or those that subvert Christ himself. Um, So he calls them antichrist, these false teachers. And in verse 19, he said of these false teachers, which is rather interesting, notice that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. And I shared with you last week that it was God himself who unmasked them. It wasn't that they did it on their own, it's that God himself unmasked these false teachers. John had previously talked about not loving the world, not loving the things of the world. And I think that's a rather important thing. The, world, the, the term world means cosmos, it means this world system, this ungodly system that opposes God himself. And as we enter the text today, John is going to define a little bit further these false teachers. He's going to refer to them in some rather direct terms. I know that the church today doesn't like direct speech, and many people tend to think if you speak honestly and candidly that you're unloving or whatever. But John refers to these false teachers, as we're going to see, as liars. They're people that are seeking to mislead people. And the real background of this, the historical background of this, is this epistle is written about AD 90, and one of the heresies, or there were several heresies, but one of the heresies that were coming against the church was Gnosticism. It was a false religion. It was a a false Christianity. And John is writing the churches in Asia to warn them against this Gnosticism. And so John defines these false teachers as liars, as antichrists, and he states that the primary characteristic of an antichrist is that they deny Jesus Christ is God's anointed. They deny that Christ is God's anointed, that he is God's Messiah. Now, as John is addressing this, John was addressing specifically the teaching in Gnosticism that Jesus Christ was not human. That Jesus Christ was not God. At the backbone of all historical biblical Christianity 
is the fact that Jesus Christ was 100% man, 100% God. Deny either one, you don't have the true Lord, Jesus Christ. He, so he's writing them about that. And, you know, that was a teaching that had come pre, uh, previously, a thing called doceticism. We don't have to go into that in great detail. But what it did is it basically said, well, Christ did come, but Christ was always a spirit, and Christ commandeered a human body, and he acted through that human body. But then when it went to the cross, Christ departed, and that's who Jesus Christ was. Now, you may hear Jesus Christ, and you may hear that and say, oh boy, that sounds good. But that is not the Christ that the Bible teaches. And there is no other salvation in any other Christ than the Christ whom Christ himself proclaimed himself to be. So the question for us, was Jesus fully human and fully God? And if we look at the Scripture, we could divide it into two portions. Regarding Jesus' humanity, what does the Scripture say regarding Jesus' humanity? Well, start off in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with what? Shall be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. We hear this at Christmas time all the time, right? But Emmanuel is a title. And what the title means is God with us. So a virgin was going to conceive, she was going to, bear, she was going to have a child, she was going to bear a son, and that son's title is God with us. In Luke 1, 31, when the angel is speaking to Mary, she reiterates this truth. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for the term Joshua, Yeshua, which means God's salvation. Luke 2.43, Jesus is a little bit older now. And the scripture says, and as they were returning after spending a full number of days, the boy Jesus, there's implications in there, right? He was growing from a child. He now became a boy. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And this is when he stayed behind and they found him teaching some of the others. So we know from the scriptures that Jesus ate, Jesus drank, Jesus uh, slept, Jesus walked that Jesus hugged, touched, felt pain, felt thirst, bled, and even died. Every single human physical sensation that you and I experience, Jesus Christ experienced. So there can't be any, any doubt that the Scriptures declare Jesus in all of his humanity. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is, well, what about his divine nature? Was Jesus divine, and was he indeed God? Again, let's look at the Scripture. Scripture tells us, number one, for a starting place, that Jesus had authority over all creation. We just read it in Colossians. All things were made by him. All things were made for him. All things were made through him. 
Jesus Christ was the agent of creation, right? Jesus defied physical boundaries. Nothing could restrain him. He walked on water, right? He healed all diseases. He cast out demons. He turned water into wine. He commanded storms. His ability to appear and disappear as he did on the road to Demaeus or in the room with the disciple. He knew what was in the hearts of men. He raised the dead. All these things are indicative of someone who has total authority over the earth. Jesus declared in no uncertain terms his oneness and divine nature. In John 1.1, this very same apostle John, you probably know it, writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And then he adds, and the word was God. This word being Jesus was God. In John 8, 56 through 59, you're probably familiar with this. You know, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had come to tempt him. And he says, hey, your fathers rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad, and the Jews therefore said, you're not even 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus utters a statement that is overwhelmingly profound. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, by the way, what what happens when we hear Jesus say something twice? When he goes, truly, truly, verily, verily, what's the significance of it? Listen up, something important's gonna come, right? That was the method, you reiterate, you repeat the word. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now you go, what is that? What do you mean, you you am? I am. What do you mean by that? Well, that was a very, very, very precise term that Jesus used. He's repeating God's revelation to Moses in Exodus, when Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? And the Lord says, I am that I am. It is the everlasting one, the preexistent one. Jesus right here says it, and to prove that they understand what he meant, the scripture says, therefore they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There was no uh, ambivalence with that. They picked up stones because they thought Jesus had committed blasphemy by equating himself with God. In John 10, verses 30, 31, 33, Jesus makes this statement. I and the Father are one. And by the way, that one is one in essential nature, one in communion, Total and complete. I am the Father of one. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one, of, which one of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Listen, 
Even the apostles affirm this. Remember Doubting Thomas? Guy got a bad rap, by the way. Doubting Thomas, right? Remember Doubting Thomas? Hey, unless I see him, unless I'm able to stick my fingers in the holes, I'm not going to believe. And the Lord appears to them. And Jesus says to Thomas, he's, come over here. Good. Stick your fingers in the wounds. Stick them in the side. A phantom, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood as I do. And Thomas makes an amazing confession. The Bible says that Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God. Had Jesus not been God, he would have rebuked him. And he would have said, worship is reserved for God only. But there is no rebuke from Jesus. The Apostle Paul, and we're going to look at this a little bit further, probably in one of the clearest declarations of the divinity of Jesus Christ. In the book of Philippians 2, verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves. That was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he existed in the form of God. And as we're going we're to take a look at that text a little bit further down in the message, he existed in the essential nature of God. Also, the writer of Hebrews declares in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 3, the same thing. The apostle Peter declares it. The church was formed on the deity of Jesus Christ. And over two year, 2,000 years of biblical Christianity has been built upon this uh, doctrine that Christ was 100% human, 100% God. And it's this teaching that the Apostle John here in 1 John's chapter 2 seeks to defend. That's what he's defending. They're saying, well, he wasn't 100% man. They're saying, well, he wasn't 100% God. And what they were seeking to do was to rip away the fabric of the gospel. Only God could pay for sins. Only God could forgive sins. But it took a perfect human to become the atonement for sins. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's where we stand. We stand in that perfect atonement. We stand in the fact that Christ took upon himself the punishment that was done for you and I. So look in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25. And there's going to be three truths that I want you to be aware about that John makes in these three verses. And these truths are believers should always be aware of false teachers. The second truth is believers confess the Father. And the third truth, believers abide in Christ. Let's look at the first truth. Believers should be aware of false teachers. Verse 22, who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. 
As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. The first truth is that believers should always be aware of false teachers. The knowledge of the truth, listen, the knowledge of the truth will always contrast with lies, always. You know, a truth can't be a truth and at the same time be a lie, right? Can't happen. Truth is objective. We live in a day and age where where truth has been done away with. Truth is subjective, right? If I said that sign is blue, Somebody could say, well, is it really blue? You know, maybe it's not 100% blue, and we go through all of this flip-flopping. It seems like we're a culture today that, you know, nothing is objectively true. But let me share something with you. The Word of God is objectively true. And, you know, John is writing here. He's writing about these false teachers. And in verse 22, he says, who's a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And he says, this is the spirit of Antichrist. Again, I give you that, that definition of Antichrist means those who oppose or those that are seeking to supplant Christ. That's what it is. He says, this is the spirit, the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed. And so he's telling them right here that in order to know the truth, you must abide in the truth. In Psalm 27, 5, the psalmist says this, Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all day long. That should be the prayer of every believer. God, lead me in truth. Listen, this word is objectively true. And one of the things that we stand upon in terms of this church, we stand upon the truthfulness of, of Scripture. We have a document called the Calvary Confession. It's on our website. You could see it. And we boldly declare to everybody that we are a church that stands on this truth. As a matter of fact, our confession says this, we believe in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, as the divinely inspired Word of God and the only authoritative truth and final authority of our faith. We stand on the truth of the Word of God. Now, let me tell you something about that truth. That truth contrasts with just about everything that's in the world today. When the Word of God speaks, if you're a believer in Christ, you must hold to that truth. You may be ostracized for it. You may be criticized for it. You might be persecuted for it. You might die for it. But the truth still stands. Listen, 2,000 years later, we're here preaching a gospel because men and women literally gave their lives for the truthfulness of this word. Throughout the history of the church, the word of God was banned at various times from the church, believe it or not. The people in the church didn't want the people in the the authorities in the church didn't want the people in the church to know the word of God. 
And so they would say, well, we have the authority. We have the knowledge of it, and don't worry about it. We'll tell you what it says. And consequently, multiple, multiple, multiple false teachings entered the church. And the purity of the gospel was being eroded. How blessed are we today that we have access to this truth? The Apostle John, who's writing this epistle, was a direct witness to Christ. He was the one who, it was said that Jesus leaned back on him at the Last Supper. Him and his brother James were the ones that when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, were the ones that went to the Lord and say, hey Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? He received his apostleship directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is defending this truth that he had brought to the churches in Asia. And he's recognizing that there are some who are consciously working to undermine that truth. So he calls them liars. And it means those who falsify, who misinform, who manipulate information. And whether people who fall to those beliefs, whether they know it or not, their false beliefs are designed, they are designed to turn people away from the truthfulness of the gospel. I mentioned last week that uh, Jesus speaks of this in the parable of wheat and tares in Matthew chapter 13, that he talks about somebody who planted a field, and then as the wheat started coming up, they started to find that there were tares among them right? And tares destroy the crop. And the workers of the field go to the master and they say, hey, do you want us to start plucking up the tares? And what did Jesus say? He goes, no, 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 no. Let them grow together. And then at harvest time, I will send out the harvesters and they will bundle the tares and set them aside to be burned. And that's a teaching that in all churches, there are those who belong to Christ, who hold to the truth, but there are many who grow up side by side, who call themselves Christians, who call themselves believers, who know all the buzzwords, who know all the praise the Lord, hallelujah, bless God, all the other different things, who get culturized into Christianity, but has never come with true repentance and faith to Christ. The first thing that John tells the church is, is be aware, be aware of those false teachers, be aware of those lies. The second thing, or the second truth that he mentions is, believers confess the Father and the Son. Look at verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. Notice that. I want to call your attention to a few words in that verse. The one who denies, the one who, who says it's not true, that Jesus and Christ are one, that there is, a, there is a oneness in Christ. He said, if you deny one or you deny the other, okay, you're incomplete. It is the one who confesses the Son. The one who confesses the Son. Those are the ones who are of God. The ones who confess the Father and the Son. These are the children of God. Now, this may 
not seem so important. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I entitled this message, The Truth About Jesus Christ. But in order to to illuminate this truth a little bit, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Because I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. Because this is a pivotal truth of Scripture. And it cannot be minimized. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. And this is what is called the famous kenosis passage, which talks about the humility of Christ, the emptying of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes the church at Philippi regarding the humanity and the deity of Christ. And in one of the most important portions of Scripture regarding Christ being 100% man, 100% God, Paul concludes that portion in verses 9 through 11. I want you to, I want you to follow me with this. Verse 9, Therefore also God highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, those who are under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? You may have heard this passage before. We talked through this several months ago in Bible study on Tuesday night. In this great, great theological passage here, On the deity of Christ, Paul makes a few really important statements regarding Christ. And the intent of this is so that you know the truth of Christ. That's the intent. He begins that Christ has a new name. The name which is above every name is the name Lord. And we find that this new name in verse 11 Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, Lord's a term you see all over the New Testament, right? In the Greek, it's kurios, right? Which basically means like Lord, Master. But what we see here is different. This is a synonym. This is the Old Testament description of God as the sovereign ruler. It refers to the right and it it defines his mastery over everything. And when we apply this to Jesus, it refers to his deity, to his divine right, and his oneness with the Father. And to show you that, notice in the verse... To whom does everyone submit? To whom does everyone bow? Now, if we were to ask this question today, you say, to whom does everyone submit? You'd say, God. Everyone is going to submit to God. And he says, who is the name that is above all? Sometimes I hear people say, well, the name above all is Jesus. But Jesus is merely his, or Yeshua is really his Hebrew name. It is his given name at birth, right? But most obviously, people are going to bow to God. And God bears many names. God bears many titles, does he not? Do we know Jehovah Jireh, my provider? Jehovah Rapha, my healer? Jehovah Nisi, 
his banner over us. We know that God bears many titles. So in keeping with this, he says that he's going to give them a new name and that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One of the titles of God is Adonai in the Hebrew. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. And that is the name that is being ascribed to Christ here. He is Adonai. He is the sovereign one. Paul says about this name that he is highly exalted. Highly exalted. And the verb that is used here is precisely, is precise to the text. To highly exalt means simply this. There is none higher. That's what it means. To be highly exalted means that there is none higher. So the first direction that we see here that Paul gives in this text is that God acted, and God acted in such a manner to ensure that there would be no name or title higher. And the first point we can discern is that it's not a name at all, and that this is not merely a name, but rather a highly exalted title. So Jesus is Adonai. He is Lord. The second thing that we could link to this is that the title is linked to a person, and beyond a shadow of a doubt, that person is who? Jesus Christ. There's nobody nobody else in there, right? That this title is for Jesus Christ. For only Christ was the only person who ever humbled himself to such a degree. Look at verse 5 of Philippians 2 in that same context. I want to show you something. If you break down that chapter in verse 1, verse 4, in verse 4, He's talking in verse 3, he says, Let you have humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He's telling people, you've got to be humble in the church. You've got to serve in the church. And then in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There it is. He left his heavenly throne. He left his heavenly realm. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. He submitted himself completely and fully to the Father. He became obedient, took the form of what? Of a man. There's Christ's humanity. He took himself in the likeness of men, in verse 8, and being found in the appearance as what? As a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ became that perfect substitute for sin. And the only way that was possible was by him 
becoming a human being. A man conceived in the womb of his mother Mary, coming out as an infant, growing into a boy, growing into a teenager, becoming a man, and a man that was sinless. Listen, if you were in Jesus Christ, the only reason you could be saved was because Christ became a man and he offered himself sinless to God as that perfect sacrifice. And God was so pleased with that sacrifice. God accepted that sacrifice that God demonstrated it to the world by raising him from the dead. And the curse of sin had been done away with. The curse of sin had been done away with. Go down to verse 10 of Philippians 2. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, those on, the, uh, on earth, and those under the earth. The favor of God is something that is very unique and that is the proclamation of his title. This is like a coronation. You were faithful, Jesus. I'm going to give you a title that is above all titles. And look at verse 11. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess. Now, I want to ask you a question. In the Bible, what does the word every mean? Anyone? It means everyone, everything. Notice what is happening here. Jesus Christ, because of his humility as a man, now gets crowned, he gets exalted, he gets lifted up. He is given the greatest title, and the proof of his deity is this. Every knee shall bow, and every knee and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is... Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one, the glorious one. What is it that they're confessing in verse 11? What are they confessing? That Christ is the rightful Lord of the universe, to the saved and to the redeem of all eternity. Boy, this, this gets my juices flowing, so I, I just want to tell you this. If you are in Christ, if you are saved in Christ, to the redeemed of all eternity, this is a joyful confession. We'll be there that day. We will cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. We will shout it. We will sing it. We will magnify. We will be saying it with such joy and exaltation. There are no human words to describe it. Right? We will cry out, Jesus. And let me share something with you. Every tear... We ever cried, every trial we ever endured, the pain of our earthly life in that moment will be gone. As a matter of fact, you won't even think it was worth it. I don't even know if you'll even remember it. And we will have known that all of our suffering, be it physical, mental, spiritual, every pain we strive to endure was worth it as we proclaim that Jesus is our Savior and we're going to proclaim it to the glory of God the Father. There is no disruption in the triunity of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's no, it is perfect, it, it, it dwells, there's no jealousy. Why is he getting all the glory? It says that everyone's going to confess that Jesus Christ is, 
is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that object of our worship, Jesus Christ, is now, finally, at that time when this happens, will be receiving the reward of his suffering. And all of creation cries out, his worth. And all of creation cries out and worships for the glory of God. But let me share something. To the unsaved, here's the twist now. The unsaved are going to cry out the same thing. But to the unsaved, to those in hell, they're also compelled to acknowledge and agree with his judgment. That they're there and they're rightly there. And consequently, they seal their eternal fate. Because they agree that Jesus Christ was the righteous. They agree that Jesus Christ was God's only sacrifice. They agree. Therefore, there's no argument that they can make. They agree that they have been condemned by their sin. They agree that they will spend an eternity in hell. And I don't believe, you know, the Bible doesn't teach anywhere that in hell people become repentant. It teaches in hell people become more hardened therefore more than likely in hell they will curse Christ listen it is this denial of Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord he is sovereign Lord only because he is 100% human and 100% God it is this denial of him as master and savior that those refuse to conform to on earth. And because of their willfulness and unrepentant heart, they will forever endure the wrath of God. It's a terrible thing. But it is what the Bible speaks of. And by the way, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, you don't have to turn there. Peter makes a great statement that, that coincides with this portion in Philippians. And kind of coincides with this portion in 1 John chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, he says, Therefore let all of the house of Israel know, assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is Lord and Christ. He is the sovereign one. He is Adonai and Christ. And hence, to deny the truth of who Christ is, is to deny the truth of his humanity or his deity, is to stray from the historic biblical truth that Christ himself declared. It is evidence that the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ is not in anyone who would deny this truth. So whom, the question for us is, whom does this truth dwell in? Go back to 1 John chapter 2. Take a deep breath. I jumped around a lot. Just take a deep breath. It'll all come together. Just... 
Bear with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. As for you. Who is John writing to? Who is he writing to? To the church. He's writing to the church. As for you. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Let this truth abide for you. And notice what he says. The things that you have heard from the beginning. John is approximately up in years at this point. He is the only living apostle left. This is at the end of the first century probably A.D. 90, A.D. 91, A.D. 92. John had suffered for the gospel. John had been persecuted for the gospel. By the way, you want to know something really interesting about the Apostle John? The Apostle John, they tried to kill him. And the killing that they devised for him was to throw him in a boiling cauldron of oil. And so they bound him hand and foot, and it came the day, and they threw him in the oil, that was boiling, and nothing happened. Nothing at all. It was like he was in a hot tub. You know, oh, that's good for my back. You know, my back feels so much better. So they took him out of, here, out of there, and they exiled him to Patmos. He had paid his dues for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then some. And so he had been teaching the churches in Asia the gospel. Now, do you think if he was a witness to Christ, do you think that he was one of the disciples that was in that boat when Jesus said to the storm, be still? It's an interesting word there. It actually means shut up. When Christ cried out, be still to the waves. And he saw that. And when he saw Christ walking across the water, he saw that. And he was there when he, ha- when he, when he raised the, the woman Tabitha's son. And he was there when he went to the tomb of Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, and cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And he was there when he cast out the demons, and they went into a, a herd of swine and went over the cliff. And he was there when he healed the 12, the 10 lepers, but only one came back to give glory to God. And he was there when he fed the 5,000, which was more like 15,000. And they picked up 12 baskets afterwards. And he was there when every one of them walked away, and the Bible says that he was left only with his disciples, and he said, are you guys going too? It was Peter who said, Lord, where are we going to go? You got the words of life. And he was there when they cast out demons. And you know where John was? Where many weren't? At the foot of the cross. And he saw him beaten, bloodied, mocked, laughed at, spat at as he hung upon the cross and he paid for the sins of all who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, do you think this John went back to the churches of Asia and everywhere where he evangelized, and he brought this same gospel to the churches? Yes, he did. And they were all growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And most of these churches existed in pagan cultures, in pagan society. These churches were persecuted for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And now as another heresy emerges on the scene, he defends the truth about Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, he says, As for you, church, let that abide in which you heard from the beginning. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to these new people with new revelation and new truths that are telling you the things that I told you were not true. You need something else. And you know what? God's message to the church of Jesus Christ here in America in this day in Florida is Don't be deceived. This gospel truth is the same. And this gospel truth cries out to men and women, turn from your sins, repent, come to Christ and be saved. And you don't need anything else. All you need is Christ. And so he says to them, as for you, abide and let that abide in which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, that means to permanently reside in you, you will also abide. Notice, not in one or the other. You will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Let me tell you something. The Father and Son are consistent. They abide in one holy Godhead, what I refer to and many refer to as the mighty three in one and the mighty one in three. And this glorious triunity of God has been taught from Genesis to Revelation. Man, just go to Genesis 126. Jesus said, let us make man in our image. He's using plurals of majesty. Who's he talking to? Well, can't be talking to angels. They're not majestic. He's not talking to demons. They're certainly not majestic. He's not talking to cows. He's not talking to sheep. He's not talking to goat. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the plurality of the Godhead. It is the believer in Christ who abides in the Father. Believers in Christ, in his deity, his humanness. Believers in Christ who died to save sinners. Listen, only Christ brings new life who in, only Christ through, uh, indwells us with the uh, person of the Holy Spirit. Christ loved those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. Jesus will soon come. Can I get an amen to that one? Jesus will soon come to gather to himself all those saved believers who dwell on the earth. It's going to occur in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And he who freely gives them eternal life with them, Christ will come, Christ will take us up, Christ will dine with us in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And all the redeemed of all 
eternity, thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to worship. We're going to glorify. We're going to magnify. We're going to do it with those who have gone before us. We're going to do it with those that come after us. We're going to do it with the saints of old. We're all going to stand before and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And Christ who will judge the earth, he'll abolish sin. He'll judge the sinners. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth where believers will reign with him forever and ever. I don't know about you, but it doesn't get better than that. And so what do we cry? We cry all praise to the Father who has begotten us before the foundations of the world. We cry all praise to the Son who loved us and died for us that we might have eternal life. And we cry all praise to the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and separates us from sin. One of my favorite verses, I believe we have it here, is Romans eleven thirty six. And summing all of this up, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Praise God for his mercy. Is it important to know who Christ is? Oh, yes, it is. We declare the truth about Christ. Jesus said something, and I'll close with this. Jesus said something to the woman at Samaria in John chapter 4. She asked him a question. She said, hey, I have a question for you. This is in a little bit of Brooklynese, but I'll put it to you this way. I got to ask you a question. He said, where do you worship God? You know, you say... You worship down there in Jerusalem in the temple, but we say we worship up here in Mount Gerizim. Where do you worship God? It's a question that many people ask today. What do you, what do you mean? I can worship God in my house. I could go on. Yeah. And Jesus said, a day is coming and now is where those who worship the Father will worship him. Notice what he says. Not merely in spirit. He didn't say, those who worship the Father are going to worship him in spirit. He says, we'll worship him in spirit and truth. Notice, notice that they go together in spirit and truth. Why? Why? Because you have to know whom it is you worship. See, a lot of people want to worship in spirit and they want to run around and jump up and down and do all these other different things. But the truth of Christ is missing from their life. Therefore, that's not worship. That's merely emotional. But when you know who Christ is, when you know who God the Father is, when you know who the person of the Holy Spirit is, when that three-in-one envelops you, when you are born again, when you have been granted new life in Christ, 
It is then, when you recognize what God has done for you, when you've recognized what Christ has done for you, that you could come before God and worship him because of the truth that is in you. You rejoice in that truth. You rejoice that Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God. You rejoice in the person of the Holy Spirit who gifts, who sanctifies you, who is the revelator of truth. You rejoice in God the Father who knows all things, who is omniscient, who knew you before the foundation of the world. And because of that, you can worship him in spirit and truth. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.